subject here uh, <laughs> mental illness as entertainment uh, I like I'm gonna say right out the gate maybe this is a spoiler but for the most part I like all of the movies that we're gonna be talking about today but I feel like I'm gonna be highly critical of them at the same time <laughs> mm-hmm. so I guess I just wanted to start off by sort of saying like um, I'm coming at it from a very personal place I know a lot of people who suffer from mental illness I've lost people to mental illness, and uh, it, it seems it seems like a subject that, especially today, needs to be taken more seriously. Yeah, <laughs> so definitely. I think that, as well intentioned as a lot of these movies are, I'm going to be doing my ranks and ratings on the basis of that title: mental illness as entertainment. Are we just laughing at these people? Are we learning something from these people? Is it compassionate or condescending? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's sort of my approach to it. I was just thinking about it before we started recording. And I, <laughs> I thought I might come off a little bit hard. <laughs> and I don't want you to think that I'm cynical or against romantic comedies, which some people might <laughs> might describe some of these as loosely. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think they're kind of more that dreaded word dramedies. <laughs> they try and give you a little bit of everything, um, and it's a weird balance, a tough balance to make. But uh, anyway, that's that's my take coming into this. I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same um, space with it. I also pretty much like all of these movies, and um, but I don't think any of these are disrespectful. And one of the reasons that I chose this list was that when I was just scrolling through all of your choices, your hundreds and hundreds of lists, <laughs> um, I think that this might be the only one that I had seen all of them before. Oh wow! And we think, oh, I wonder if I wonder if there's a reason for that. I wonder if I'm just you know kind of interested or attracted to this kind of story. So yeah, I was interested to watch them again. It's not just your your affinity for Johnny Depp. Oh, God. <laughs> no, Johnny Depp's not my favorite. We get two Johnny Depps this episode. Um, and they both yeah. came out of 1993. Well, I mean, I don't think he got his huge blockbuster out the way until the Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out. But I do think 93 was probably the year that made Johnny Depp the it boy. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't a big fan of his TV show. And, uh, yeah, he was in Nightmare on Elm Street, but nobody knew him as Johnny Depp from Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) Is there anything you wanted to say by way of uh, introduction before I list off the movies and we start? Is there anything you want to get get off your chest? Um, No, I think I'll... um, I'd rather you lead the conversation and I will follow. Thank you for coming back. We didn't wait a decade. We, we did it like a year and change later. <laughs> so here we are. We're back. Yeah. The six movies we are going to be reviewing on the theme of mental illness as entertainment. We have Benny and June and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, the Johnny Depp 93 double feature. We have the Royal Tenenbaums. We have Thumbsucker. We have an interesting little ditty called Lars and the Real Girl. And we're going to finish with Silver Lining Playbook. All One, right. two, three, go. Go. Boom. What's she going to do? She paints and she reads. Yeah, she paints, she reads. She lights things on fire. I got a fire extinguisher. Just bring her. Come on, play cards. Soft on the rope, slightly used. You take my cousin off my hands. Wait, wait, wait. I lost. What's well, in the pot? A cousin. I am not taking this guy home. Did you see those those raisins on TV? The ones that sing and dance and stuff? They scare me. Yeah, me too. Knock it off. I'm her brother. And I'm her only family. One of the first things that I want to talk about when we go into Benny and June is what happened to Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you were a big John Hughes fan. <laughs> I was a big John Hughes fan when I was a kid, and some kind of wonderful was like pretty in pink with the right ending. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I really, really liked that. I really liked her in it, and I've always had kind of a soft spot for her, and she just disappeared. 
I was watching mm-hmm. Blue's Clues, which is a show you've probably not heard of because you don't have children, with my <laughs> son Tristan. This was years ago. And she showed up on this kid's show playing Cinderella. And I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad she got work and everything, but I think she should be a player. I think she's a really good mm-hmm. actress. In, in, yeah. In Benny the and thing Jean- I re- Sorry? Sorry. The thing I remember her from is uh, her role in Fried Green Tomatoes. Of course. That's the one that always uh, comes back for me. Yeah. She's always good. Like, she's always been a really solid actress, I thought. So she sort of plays our central character. They never specifically diagnose her in the movie, but it seems to be some form of schizophrenia. But uh, this has in common with some of the other movies that we're going to be talking about, where although the focus is, is Mary Stuart Masterson June and her illness, I think a case could be made that most of the main characters in the movie are suffering from some form of mental illness or not. Yeah, and actually I think that's true of a lot of these movies. Yeah. Um, it's early 90s. It's got a great cast, a lot of familiar faces. Uh, in the background, even, Oliver Platt, a one-scene role from William H. Macy. And it's a sweet, well-intentioned romantic comedy with this backdrop of the mental illness stuff. And I think the sweetness and the warmth of the characters really go a long way to sell the fact that they're skating over a lot of the hard edges on the mental illness. This is what I mean about me being cynical <laughs> about these movies, because this is just a movie that wants to put a smile on your face, just be warm, and just be romantic. But I don't know that it's taking it the, the illness 100% seriously. Mm-hmm. That's where I start. Yeah, um, some of the, I guess, uh, interesting things I would say uh, is... Um, when you're talking about family dynamics with mental illness, there's, you know, um, often the problem of treating adults as children. And here we have the brother who, um, I guess we haven't really gone through the plot yet, but um, the Johnny Depp character um, and June fall in love and the brother just can't handle it and throws him out of the house and he's that very is threatened just, by it yeah yeah and it's just so sad i mean she's a grown-up yeah you know and and uh so i, I like that they they showed that but then further to the love story we do have the issue where you know the and i guess this is where the romantic comedy comes in but yeah it's kind of like well you know love conquers all and you know it can help you help cure your mental illness and i mean that's just it's naive. ridiculous it's naive yeah, yeah uh benny and june are brother and sister they live together in this uh house and uh they've lost their parents at a young age and it's affected them both to the negative basically benny has this need to look after june he's become the parent figure uh and basically dedicated his life to her exclusively and june has I could say some form of schizophrenia, but it sort of manifests itself as quirk. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a couple of scenes where she's vaguely threatening. She blows a tissue paper off of a fan into a candle and leaves the tissue burning on the floor. Like there's a bit of danger to it, but for the most part, she kind of comes off as cute. <laughs> right. Uh, 
the interesting thing about the Johnny Depp character is this like 26 year old uh, guy shows up in the town. He's illiterate and is basically just couch hopping um, and seems like brought in from another time. He's obsessed with old movies, Charlie Chaplin, sort of slapstick physical comedy. And uh, he is just as quirky as she is, although he's undiagnosed as far as what his deal is. But you have to think that there's maybe something. Now, mm-hmm. I know the movie portrays it as Benny gets stuck having to take in the Johnny Depp character because he loses a bet or in a card game or whatever, uh, or June does. But I don't know how Benny doesn't see this romance blossoming <laughs> between these two as a thing that would happen. <laughs> like, the mm-hmm. fact that that doesn't occur to him, I think, isn't re- even really credible. They're about yeah. the same age, they're both super weird, and they just constantly throwing doe eyes at each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, uh, the other conflict is that uh, the psychiatrist, who I think has been sort of quietly treating both of them, <laughs> uh, I think it's on the auspices that she's treating June, but she seems to offer a lot of advice to, to Benny as well. She thinks that June might need to be institutionalized. And, of course, Benny is very resistant to that. But the idea of her living on her own doesn't seem realistic either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's, it is taking it seriously in that there are stakes. But I don't know that, especially with something as serious as schizophrenia, <laughs> like she hears voices a few times or, or she eats, like, peanut butter, Captain Crunch, and milk in a blender. That's her daily breakfast. She's got these routines. Mm-hmm. Again, that seems cute. But then all of a sudden... You know, she has a scene where she's super crazy. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think it works better as a sweet romantic comedy. And I think if you're taking it too seriously, as clearly I am, there are things that you can pull. You can pull threads. <laughs> yeah. But it's hard to hate a movie that just wants to put a smile on your face, too. So am I being mean to it? No, I don't think you're being mean to it. I mean, I, I guess I feel the same way. Um, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of cute scenes and, you know, all the the kind of when June is after her episode in the bus, she's in the psychiatric hospital and um, the brother Benny has to has to get on side again with Johnny Depp in order to try to get his sister to talk to him because, you know, obviously she gets very angry when he tells her that she can't be with Sam. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, they try to sneak into to her room and uh, there's that scene with Johnny Depp kind of like swinging back and forth across the window and she's what, on the second or third floor or yeah. something like that. You know, those scenes are, are cute, but I mean, I don't know. It... it Silly too, at the same time. And if yeah. you're going to take that seriously, it's yeah. That's the, I don't think that's what the movie. The case can be made. Before. I mean, Hollywood makes the case that you like you said, love will cure all things. But a case mm-hmm. can be made that if she's so in such a bad place mentally right now that she needs to be institutionalized, maybe a relationship isn't a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something to say to like try and having your your shit together before you enter into someone else's world, right? <laughs> Uh, just just a working theory. Uh, mm-hmm. I also like that everybody knows June, so they kind of accept that she's mentally ill, but they don't embrace it. It's not like they just they they love Benny so much that they support his supporting of June. 
But the Johnny Depp character really does seem like this homeless person that wandered into town that everyone's just like not too sure about. And what we're going to see in some of the later films, which I think is is less credible, is an entire community's em- embracing someone with mental illness, which mm-hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that this movie navigates that better. But when I go to the end sort of scene towards the movie where, where uh, we see Johnny Depp and, and Mary Stuart Masterson and they're together and Benny won't interrupt them. He just lets them be. I wonder... I wonder what this couple looks like. Fast forward 10 years, you know, <laughs> what, what kind of life are they going to etch out for each other? Like what, what <laughs> Johnny Depp can barely read. He works at a video store and that's going to be closing really soon. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That video store has been closed for 10 years already now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't, uh, know. I don't June, know. There's but, no magic I mean, pill to cure June, and it looks like there's a pretty steep uphill battle for Johnny Depp. I guess they have each other, and that's sweet, but that is not... Well, they have each other, and they're trying to solve that that problem with the Ruthie character. So, actually, that was one of my least favorite um, plot points in this movie, was the relationship they were trying to develop between Benny and Ruthie, the Julie, Julianne Moore. Yeah. Terrible hair in that movie. Sorry? Terrible hair in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love Julian Moore, but yeah. Yeah, but she owns that apartment complex where, you know, Ben and June end up living. So I guess she can kind of watch over them. And if she's in a relationship with Benny, Mm -hmm. then they're all a big happy family who can look out for each other. Right. And I mean, it doesn't sew it up in a sweet little button. Everything's going to go on, you know, but it's... It's a rom-com. It's it's a good date movie. I don't know that it's a good movie about mental illness, but I think it's a good, sweet, romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say about Benny and June. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I don't have anything else to say about Benny and June either. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, again, uh, it may rank lower on the list than its charm suggested should, but uh, check out Benny and June. Pandora, it's a town where nothing much ever happens. This is where I live with my family. (laughs) Doctor said we'd be lucky if Arnie lived to be 10. I could go at any time. Arnie, don't be rude. Some days you want him to live. I kill him, Gilbert. I know, buddy. Okay, son, come down now. Bye! Some days you don't. When is this going to stop? And then there's Mama. Then my mom in there. You see, with mama, there's no nice way to break it to you. She's not all that big, Gilbert. I saw a guy at the state fair who was a little bit bigger. I haven't always been like this. I haven't always been like this. Gilbert, I'll need to delivery later. If nothing ever happens here. It's those lobsters, isn't it? Why does it always happen to me? What's Eating Gilbert Grape is <laughs> a motion picture directed by Lassa Hellstrom, and it has a fairly interesting star-studded cast, which portrays all of the citizens of a small town, uh, and specifically one family, which has uh, just a maelstrom of mel- mental illnesses <laughs> circling around it. Um, obviously, the one that hits most close to home to me is the character portrayed by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is fairly severely autistic. Um, 
I've gone on in the past in the podcast. It's sort of a personal thing for me. Uh, I, I much prefer if you're going to have a character who's autistic in a movie, A, they be there for a reason, and B, that they be treated honestly. <laughs> and a big compliment I want to get out of the way out of the gate is that I do think that they handle the autism in this movie very well. Not just the great portrayal by Leonardo DiCaprio, and I think it remains one of his best performances, but the community's reaction to him. There are some people that seem to get it, and there are other people that just are exasperated and furious by his very existence. His presence seems to bother them. His mother, who used to be a former beauty queen, is now so overweight that she cannot physically leave the home that she's living in. And uh, her daughters can't wait to be gone, and Johnny Depp has sort of taken the de facto parent role again. And he's sort of the Benny character in this movie from Benny and June, where he's sort of holding the burden of everyone else on himself. And aside from a knowingly dead end affair with the local grocer's wife and uh, uh, a few things that he allows for himself, his entire existence is predicated on caring for his family and not for himself. So I think there's some depression there at the very, at the very least. Yeah. There's a lot of balls in the air, a lot of characters, and a lot of great actors sort of playing, like I say, Crispin uh, Glover playing the mortuary attendant, John yeah. C. Riley in the background there. Um, the movie's full of color and full of charm, just like Benny and June. But unlike, I would say, Benny and June, it's much more, much more successful at handling the material, the serious material. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, Johnny Depp's life is very, very structured, very, very looking after the, the family. And then all of a sudden, Juliette Lewis and her caravan of trailer folk show up in town. And uh, all of a sudden, he has a romance that he can take seriously. And he gets a, a picture of a bigger world that he could maybe someday be a part of. But the idea of just abandoning his family, which is what it would feel like, is difficult. Mm-hmm. What'd you think of What's Eating Gilbert Grape, girl? Uh, well, um, yeah, because it's one of the older movies on this list, I hadn't watched it for a while. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's good. It's a, it's an interesting story, and Leonardo DiCaprio does a great job playing Arnie. I mean, I, I thought he was completely believable. And you have the realistic portrayal, I think, of... Um, yeah, the frustrations um, of the family members. I mean, um, one of Arnie's favorite things to do is to go climb the water the tower. water tower Oof. in town. And I mean, it's not just an inconvenience; it's dangerous. I mean, he climbs high, can fall off, and you know the police have to get involved and they have to get him down from there. And of course, to Arnie, he's just you know fun. having a bit of fun. Yeah. And so, those scenes were were really good um and the the scenes between johnny depp and leonardo dicaprio i think were um some of them really kind of painful and touching like um it's um gilbert's job to give arnie his bath and get him to bed at night and there's one scene where he wants to go back and hang out with Juliet Lewis, so he asks Arnie to get up and, and go put himself to bed on his own, um, you know, feeling like, you know, we've he can do done this. this every night together for how many years? He can do it, yeah, but of course, you know, and he doesn't give it another thought, but of course he 
um, comes home, goes to bed, and then gets up the next morning and finds Arnie is uh, you know, freezing tub. cold, just shivering, still in the tub, and it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. the first time, I think, that at least that we've seen in the movie, that he's really failed Arnie. And yes. he knows it, and everybody knows it. It's like, you see what happens when you try to do something for yourself? Right? Yeah. <laughs> your brother could have got pneumonia. He could have died, and it was your fault. That exactly. scene is that scene is absolutely heartbreaking, and just the realization of it. He's just walking bleary-eyed into the bathroom and checking himself out in the mirror, and then suddenly it dawns on him that his brother is still sitting in that tub. Brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the way you were talking about the the cops taking him off the water tower. Uh, that that's a regular occurrence. They do that all the time, and the sheriff is so fucking sick of it. And all of the spectators walking around applauding as he's rescued again, like a cat out of a tree. But when the, the third time I think it happens in the movie, they actually arrest him, and he throws Arnie in the back of the car. He he smashes Arnie's head on the on the lip of the door as he's going into yeah. the car. Doesn't give a shit. Doesn't recognize it. Doesn't like. And you know, it's interesting because I think what a lot of people miss about autistic people, or, or it's a spectrum, so I won't say all autistic people, but a lot of them is that. They honestly don't register emotion on other people, you know? They don't understand. Like, they'll maybe understand that they've done something wrong, but they don't understand that that's upsetting you or that you're upset. Like, they're sort of so in their own little place that, that it's hard to get out of it. So, I've never seen that quite done as well. I mean, people can, you can do mimicry, you can, you know, hang out with autistic people and sort of catch some of the tics and hums and mannerisms that are commonly seen. But to get into the psychology of that, where, it, and it's not out of spite. That's, I think, why people get frustrated. It's like, we've, I've told you this before. I mean, can't you see how upset? Well, no, he doesn't recognize that you told him that before. And no, he doesn't recognize that it's making you upset. You know? And yeah. it, it, it's really hard to deal with, right? It can be really difficult. So uh, they managed to do that and keep the proceedings light. Now, to move the focus yeah. over to the mother. Um, the only thing that can spur her out of that house is to protect her kids. <laughs> yep. It's an interesting confrontation. Like, she gets, she leaves the house, she drives into town, she makes a huge spectacle out of herself. It's got to be really uncomfortable, maybe, like, humiliating. And she confronts the, the sheriff, and he has told her that if, if this keeps happening, this kid's going to be arrested. And he arrested the kid, and he's not technically, by the letter of the law, wrong. And she just demands her son back. She doesn't say, you know, give me a court date. She doesn't say, like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll settle, we'll figure some punishment for him. She just outright, flatly demands, give me my son. And I don't know, like, as a parent, that hits something primal. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I thought it was an incredibly strong scene. And for all these incredibly strong scenes, they do not forget the charm and sort of the quirk of the small town. They, you can still have quirk. You can still sort of have that Benny and June vibe. You just need to be honest about the characters. Yeah, and another example of that is um, just the, the respect, but then immediate almost disrespect they have towards their mother. Um, example I'm thinking of is when um, they realize that um, because of her weight, there's a danger that the the beams and in the living room floor or the beams 
are not going to hold. And they kind of sneak in the John C. Riley character <laughs> into the basement. And, you know, they don't want her to know that they're, they're doing this, but they're going to have to reinforce that, that basement ceiling. Yeah. And, you know, and so they're, they're talking about it and trying to fix it without upsetting the mother. But, at, you know, in the 30 seconds later, Johnny Depp is, uh, you know, they can see, neighborhood kids lurking about and he you know gestures to one of them to come and he lifts up the kids so that he can have a look at at the, the you know, his obese mother you know yeah. so it's kind of yeah it's you get both sides for sure well and you can see how he would be frustrated with his mother i mean she did get out of the house to bail out her son but for the most part she doesn't get out of the house for the mm -hmm. most part the groceries the getting of the to and fro of all the kids that's all been on johnny depp and he does have some resentment he won't yep. express that to her, but he will let the neighborhood kids take a gander at the freak in the house at the corner, you know? And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, sh that gives him dimension. Another performance I want to talk about is Juliette Lewis. Um, strange, strange figure, Juliette Lewis. Sometimes I really like her, sometimes I kind of feel like she nails down the chalkboard. This is one of the few movies where she comes across as maybe, just maybe, dateable. <laughs> <laughs> But I think she's cute. She's cute. No, she's, she's just got a strange vibe. And she usually plays, well, I won't say usually. A lot of the movies that I've seen her in, she plays these sort of shrill, naive characters. I'm thinking about like Natural Born Killers or California or Cape Fear. And, uh, you, you know, it just, <laughs> it's not a, she's usually not a weak character, but there's something shrill and off-putting about her sometimes in some of these movies. None of that is present here. I, I totally get why Johnny Depp would be into her and why he would, you know, <laughs> make excuses and cut corners to spend more time with her. Especially because, you know, as far as he knows, they're on a very limited timeline here. She's only stopping to get repairs done and, and, and they will be hitting that highway and driving into the sunset soon. And uh, it, it's not good. Mary Steenburgen? Yeah. Uh, as a very sad housewife living a very sad existence talking about sort of yeah, really. B-side sort of storyline B-plot story in, in here about just how people can come to regret the decisions they've made but find themselves so deep in the trap that they couldn't think to begin to get themselves out of it mm -hmm. it's in, like everybody in the town has something all of the people we meet have quirks <laughs> Uh, I think the most generally well-balanced character we meet might be the John C. Riley character. <laughs> but Crispin Glover is the mortician. <laughs> you get the feeling he's got a few screws loose. But that might just be because he's being played by Crispin Glover. But yeah, I found there's a real there's a there's a real melancholy in the movie, but it's balanced sort of by a sweetness to sort of help the medicine go down. And yeah. uh it, it sort of provides us with the same uncertain ending that Benny and June did. Um, there, there's a big dramatic death that happens in the third act, but I'm talking mainly about Johnny Depp and Arnie joining the caravan of trailers and driving in, into the distance. Like, how will Arnie adapt to an environment that changes every day? Usually he has a very strict regimented sort of environment. How is he going to adapt to that? We don't know. It's not going to be easy. Yeah. And I mean, they've had um, change forced upon them with um, the death of the mother. So I guess, you know, 
they've already had this uh, extreme change that he's had to deal with. So what better time than, you know, to, to introduce more change? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, things were going to change. They couldn't, couldn't not. So that's the other thing I wanted to talk about. The, the death of the mother, which is, you know, another heartbreaking scene. They go all the, oh. the way to having Arnie trying to wake her up, which is just fucking brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is really sad. So sad. But the decision to burn down the house as opposed to having a wall taken out and having some kind of crane lift their mother out. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sort of burning of everything down. It's a very powerful moment. But upon this viewing, I was thinking about it and was wondering... Was that a necessary thing to happen, that burning of the house and maybe the death of the mother, to free Johnny Depp and his family? Would he have changed if his mother had not died? Yeah, I guess we don't know. It's it's a hard question to answer. I know I'm not really, I guess, seriously asking you to answer it, but like... <laughs> You, you know, you know, he, you, you've talked to the writer, right? You, you, you know. <laughs> but it, it's interesting and it's rich, you know. And uh, of the two Johnny Depp movies from 1993 that de- dealt with mental illness, this is the one that got me a little dusty in my eyes. <laughs> this is the one yeah. that I think actually hits emotionally. Some people, I've heard some people sort of have turned around on this and think that there's some things like a little bit saccharine and over the top about it, but even the the emotion, the, the burning of the house, I, 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 I kind of embraced it. It was mm-hmm. cathartic for them, and it was, in a way, sparing their mother one last humiliation. I agree. Um, the only thing I might have, I mean, they didn't really have the option to wait, but it seemed kind of windy. I was kind of worried that they might burn the whole town that down, but yeah, they didn't go there. No, I don't think that was the movie. Uh, yeah. all, all in all, I'm a big fan of What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we move on? Um, just um, leading uh, another beautiful moment, I thought, was when the mother gets to meet, or Johnny Depp introduces Julia Lewis to, to his mother. Yes. Uh, and it's a really sweet moment. And it's after that, that, you know, she decides that she's going to actually walk up the stairs and go lay on the bed. And I think they're giving us, um, you know, trying to tell us that this positive interaction maybe was going to be a catalyst for change for her. Right. And, you know, the first steps towards that was actually walking upstairs doing something different but you know she she died whether or not i mean not necessarily as a result of that but it's just sad that she didn't get to try to change right after that yeah sad sad but sweet well acted yeah. charming uh check out what's eating gilbert grape mm-hmm. now i'm sad man <laughs> <laughs> And then we laugh. There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. What'd you think, Dad? Mm, didn't seem believable to me. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. I said sell it, yeah. Well, I'm on my way. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. He also stole bonds out of my safety deposit box when I was 14. (laughs) 
Now, for the first time in 22 years, they are all living together under the same roof. I hear you're dying. Oh, how long are you gonna last? A month, a year? I've got six weeks to set things right. <laughs> I want this family to love me. Right, Lisa? You know who I am? I'm your granddad. His name is Royal Tenenbaum. He told us he was already dead. Let's hit it. Yeah! How are you feeling? I'm having a ball, scrapping and yelling. You stay away from my children. Do you understand? My God, I haven't been in here for years. Hey, are you listening to me? Yes, I am. Mixing it up. Are you trying to steal my woman? I beg your pardon. I want you out of my house. Oh, yeah? Right on. I'm loving every minute with this damn crew. Yeah. What's so funny? It's these little expressions of yours. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> How interesting. How bizarre. All right, welcome to the review of the Royal Tannenbaums. And as I was just saying to Mireille, that this is the first Wes Anderson film that's being reviewed on my podcast. And he's one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. I know he's a divisive figure, <laughs> but uh, not only that, it, not only is this my first review of Wes Anderson, but this is going to be the review of this bunch that proves me a huge hypocrite. <laughs> because I've been all on about uh -oh. taking taking your subject seriously, taking the subject of mental illness seriously, and a uh, big part of that is housing it in the real world. And Wes Anderson doesn't deal in the real world. Uh, it, there's, it's all about artifice. It's all about formality and presentation. And uh, there, there's something consciously formal about it. When they run the credits, they say, you know, Gene Hackman as Royal Tannenbaum. You know, like, uh, it's almost like they're presenting you the cast of a play. Uh, and all the details of the world are fully formed up to the books on the bookshelf and up to the name of the cab company that they use. It's all made of artifice, like all movies are, but like it's not any way trying to plant itself in the real world. And the magic of most Wes Anderson movies is, in spite of this, he ends up broadsizing you with real emotional hits, typically, throughout the movie that kind of you don't, you don't see coming. You're kind of all caught up in the whimsy and the off-shucks and the strange vibe of the movie, and then all of a sudden you realize it's making you feel things. <laughs> I realize not everybody reacts that way to Wes Anderson, but I do. And in one of its purest forms, because it was one of the first of his movies that I, I saw, The Royal Tannenbaums looms high in that register. But the question I guess I will start with you in the story of a family of millionaire geniuses who have lost their mojo is, is it taking mental illness seriously? I'm going to say, yes, it is. All right, we're done. Um, done. I think that um, I agree with what you just said. I think it's uh, absolutely possible to uh, use whimsy and um, sort of a... Artifice. A artifice to represent truths mm -hmm. and I think uh, I think it's really successful here I mean I you know I'm in love with the aesthetic um, Wes Anderson aesthetic and this movie in, in particular and it, yeah I, I mean the 
It's one of those things, even... it's going to vibe with you or it isn't. Like, I think Wes Anderson and I have very similar taste in music, so that really helps. That the soundtrack really appeals to me. He does deal in montage quite a bit. Two people who I really respect quite a bit, like, my mom's not a huge fan of this movie, and my sister called this movie one of the most boring movies she'd ever seen. <laughs> and that breaks my heart. But I guess I understand that if you don't sort of slip into the groove of the movie, like if it doesn't sort of coalesce with you, that then you got 110 minutes of stuff that, you, that, that that's not connecting with you. <laughs> if it doesn't yeah. connect, it's really not going to connect. But the flip side of the coin is that if it does connect, it's really going to connect. The Cannonball children have all grown up uh, under the, basically raised by their mother, essentially. Uh, Gene Hackman Royal's been largely absent from their lives. But as children, they were incredibly successful. Chaz was a real estate tycoon, and he invented his own breed of mice. Um, the one older brother is a tennis pro. The Gwyneth Paltrow character was writing hit plays before she was 15 years old, which is not unprecedented, actually, in the real world. That has happened. <laughs> um, but they seem to have grown up in this really luxurious state of... Uh, you know, all of their cares taken care of, all of their wants taken care of, and all of their talents allowed to blossom to their fullest extreme. Right. And in spite of all of this, we catch up with them in their late 30s or early 30s, somewhere in there. And all of them have washed up in terrible places. Gwyneth Paltrow is in a loveless marriage with Bill Murray, and she spends most of her time locked in the bathroom, soaking in the tub. Um, the... Uh, uh, Count Richie? Is it Richie? Yeah. Uh, the, the tennis pro is grown a beard and worn glasses as a mask to protect himself from the world and is traveling the world trying to deny the fact that he's fallen in love with his adopted sister. Yeah. <laughs> and Chaz, Awkward. Yeah, and Chaz, uh, played by Ben Stiller, uh, is now a single father raising two kids and after the loss of his wife is just living in mortal terror of anything happening to them. He's clearly post-traumatic stress, clearly shell-shocked. And then we have Eli, the friend of the family that lived across the street, who's not as wealthy as the Tannenbaums, but who fell into success by writing cheesy Western novels, but has developed in, in his later life a fairly severe and damaging drug problem. In the midst of all of this storm, Royal Tannenbaum decides he wants to reinsert himself in their life because he hears news that Eileen is going to remarry. And even though Ethelene. they've been, Ethelene, pardon me, is going to remarry. And even though they've been apart for almost 15 years at this point or more, uh, that doesn't sit well with him. So Royal inserts himself in their lives through a series of terrible, terrible lies and tries to reconnect with his family. I know that's kind of a long sort of synopsis, but there's a lot of balls in the air with the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell me what you feel about the Royal Tannenbaum's me. Well, I mean, it's uh, the, the story of a very dysfunctional family, um, and they end up all coming together to deal with uh, Royal's fake stomach cancer. <laughs> and, you know, and they, you know, have to confront each other. Um <laughs> The first child to come back into the family home is Chaz with uh, his kids Uzi and Ari. And um, <laughs> I just love the, the scenes with his family. Um, he's 
overprotective of his sons now that uh, his wife has died and he you know runs spontaneous fire drills just uh, to make sure that they're safe and on the ball and after a um, poor showing <laughs> their uh, fire escape he brings them to Ethelene's house and I just love that scene where he brings them in and and she's you know she's got a social gathering happening and he yep. just says you know yeah it's it's not safe at our place where we're moving in <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then interesting to that, it's uh, when Gwyneth Paltrow Camargo finds out that he's moved home. She's like, how come he gets to move home? If yeah. he gets to move home, <laughs> then I get to move home. It's basically... <laughs> I kind of yeah. find Margot to be the hardest character to access in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, I don't... I mean, her adopted father was never particularly nice to her. But he was also never particularly nice to his other kids. Richie was the only kid he even seemed to attempt to bond with. But uh, yeah. this, I mean, on top of being adopted to then be rejected by half of her new parents, seems to have really fucked her up. Well, he's constantly telling everybody she's adopted. This is my adopted <laughs> daughter, Margot. <laughs> right. And he doesn't, you know, I, he, she almost doesn't... Um, show up on his radar you know when he's trying to connect with her as an adult uh he she tells him that her middle name is or uh she tells him her middle name her middle name is helen yeah. and oh that's my mother's name <laughs> <laughs> yes i know <laughs> just like the way those lines are delivered is i, I think one of the things that makes me really like wes anderson movies and this one in particular just yeah. Aside with uh, Gene Hackman, I think Gene Hackman's a great actor. I really, really do. But by all accounts, he was a huge prick on this set of this movie. Oh, Wes, really? Yeah. Wes Anderson really loved him as an actor, pictured him as Royal Tannenbaum, wrote Royal Tannenbaum with him in mind, showed the script to Gene Hackman or pitched it to him as he was writing it. And Gene Hackman said, I don't like it when people write stuff for me or whatever. But he still gave him the offer. He still said yes. And... Gene Hackman was miserable. Everybody on set, like when they were doing press for the film when it first came out, everybody was mum. But since, have said that he was in fucking possible. He was showed oh, no no, res no respect for the director. Kept on telling him to pull up his pants and like was belligerent and almost against the pro. He was brandoing this project. I don't think he really? got it. I don't think he liked the weird costumes he was wearing. I don't think he understood the aesthetic of the world. But this is what a professional actor can bring. He may have hated. Every fucking second he was there. But he is awesome. He's awesome in the movie. Like, Royal is an unbelievable son of a bitch. But we kind of like him by the end of the movie. At least I do. I mean, I don't sympathize necessarily with him. I mean, all of these things he's done, he's done to himself. But he's earnestly trying to make good on something that you just can't make good for. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, he's trying anyway. He doesn't have to even do that at this point, right? So, uh, there's a and his scene. Relationship, Sorry, his relationship with his relationship with Pagoda is really revealing too, yes. because he. I mean, we we find out that uh, he met Pagoda. I don't remember where they were, but um, but Pagoda had stabbed him, yeah. and then brought him to the hospital, and you know, helped him. Uh, helped him not die <laughs> and 
And then later on in this movie, when uh, uh, Royal ends up screwing over Pagoda again, so, well, he stabs him again. And <laughs> takes him to get stitched up. Takes him to the hospital again. But, you know, they're still buds. <laughs> they still got each other's backs. <laughs> yeah. I think that one of my favorite things is when he apologizes to the Danny Glover character. Yes, Danny Glover is also in this movie. Everybody is in this fucking movie. Um, but yeah. he's been basically trying to destroy this engagement between he and Ethelene and he says to him you know most of my life I've just been kind of an asshole that's sort of been my style but it would really bum me out if I thought you weren't gonna forgive me and the, <laughs> the response was I don't think you're an asshole I just think you're sort of a son of a bitch <laughs> and yeah. it's so perfect it's so perfect I got broadsided by Ben Stiller in this movie mm. His character is kind of shrill and hard to take because you know where it's coming from, but it's not particularly funny, and, and you worry about those kids. I mean, the one thing Royal might be right about is taking those kids out and giving them a legitimate good time because he, they live a very stressful existence around their damaged father. They seem to be dealing with the death way better than their dad. Yeah. But there's two scenes which I just think Ben Stiller just knocks me over. There's the one scene, I think, where uh, he's setting up the boys in the bunk bed and saying goodnight to them, and he goes to leave the room, and then he can't leave the room, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to lay down here with you guys. And as he lays down, even before he's settled down, his boy comes crawling off the top bunk to come lay on the floor with him. And it's so yeah. sweet. It's so sweet. Like, the boys are taking care of him. He doesn't recognize that, but they're taking care of him more than he's taking care of them. Yeah. And then there's the, the very sort of last, there's a, a huge crane shot towards the end of the movie. There's been a car accident in front of the, the Tannenbaum house. And this crane shot pans down from the fire department that's there, from the tipped over mailbox, the car accident where the boys have sadly lost their dog. And Royal talks to Chaz and Chaz just looks up and says, it's been a really hard year. Mm-hmm. I've never, like, I don't think Ben Stiller's a bad actor. I've never, wouldn't say that. But I, I, I was not expecting to be hit so emotionally with that character. And it really, yeah. really, like, that, that really hits. Um, and then, of course, the other one would be Richie. <laughs> I don't think I will ever be able to hear Elliot Smith's needle in the hay without picturing this suicide attempt scene that happens. Yeah. And, uh... It's, again, it's an incredibly powerful scene. It's, the, the world is artificial. We see Richie shaving his beard, taking off his mask, looking at himself in the mirror. And then he says, seemingly out of nowhere, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. And then instantly slashes his wrists. Mm -hmm. So strange and impactful. And on the other side of this, <clears throat> we have Dudley and Bill Murray in the next room. Bill Murray's doing this study on this weird kid, Dudley, who's probably got every single disorder all at once, you know? And in the backdrop, they're playing that for sort of kind of fun humor, but because Dudley's kind of an enigma, I don't feel like it's condescending or making fun of anything. But I also find it horrifying that it's Dudley who finds Richie. Yeah. So again, yeah. like, there's lots of sweetness and there's lots of sour, and together it all kind of stews and brews together. I, I guess you can tell, fucking love the Royal Tannenbaums. I love the soundtrack, I love the cast, I love pretty much everything about the movie. Uh, it doesn't exist in the real world, but it makes me feel real feelings. 
Yeah, and all of the um, all of the crazy situations and are you know I guess culminate in in real life emotion, right? I mean, how fucked up would you be if you had to admit out loud that you were in love with your sister? Yeah. I mean, yes, they're not related by blood, but they were brought up as siblings. So you know. It, Eli says it to Marco, you know, that's, what does he say? He says, that's fucking weird. No, I know. And how is it resolved? She says, I guess we're just going to have to be secretly in love with each other. And leave it at that, Richie. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I guess they can, uh, saying it out loud and, you know, having, having everybody know. Clearing the air. Clearing the air lets them move on mm-hmm. but yeah and yeah and just the, <laughs> the little tent Richie has set up with his record player and his little bunk in there yeah it's just oh, it's heartbreaking yeah they you can sort of see that they haven't really grown up in a, in a lot of ways uh, there's a weird fascination that Hollywood seems to have with the you know emotional malaise of incredibly wealthy people <laughs> right we always care about you know movies like Harold and Maude or Igby Goes Down or the Royal Tannenbaums. There are all these people that, at the end of the day, they're never going to starve. They're never not going to have a really, really comfortable place to live. They're never, like, the day-to-day shit that most people are waist-deep in never touches them. They don't even fucking know it exists. But for some reason, as entertainment, <laughs> we seem to enjoy knowing that rich people suffer this ennui as well, even though it's to a very different degree. Um, mm-hmm. This might be guilty of being one of those, but if it is, it's the best of them. Oh, and I just wanted to also mention the funeral scene mm-hmm. when Royal does end up dying of a heart attack, and the funeral scene is one of my favorites. You have Ari and Uzi get to shoot off their you know, <laughs> little BB guns, and and he, they, the family gives him the um, the false epitaph he's always wanted. You know, so kind of kind of sums up his his life in a in a lovely way. <laughs> and you got the Van Morrison playing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much I can do with traditional orthodontics. Justin, are you ready to let go of your thumb? Why are you talking like that? Some long to find themselves breaking out. I want to try hypnosis. Imagine you're deep in the forest. Call on your power animal. Come here. Do it in your mind. Being the mother of a 17-year-old is a trip. You're supposed to have all the answers, and you don't have one. 97% of the Earth... If you want to admire Rebecca, do that during recess. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, classic hyperactive teen. But it's not that simple. Maybe it is. No, you should see it. I mean, where is this tie? Do you see the girls out there? Yeah. Okay, go round them up. Bring them in here. Men's room. That's okay. I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. So earlier we were talking about Benny and June, and I was making a case that almost all the characters in that movie were mentally ill, in some respect or another. I think this movie Thumbsucker is definitely 
the same thing is at work here. Our focus is this 17-year-old boy who can't seem to quit sucking his thumb, and the various outlets he goes to try and cure himself of this childish oral fixation. <laughs> um, that goes to a strangely zen, marathon-running dentist, played by Keanu Reeves. His mom, who seems to be uh, quietly obsessed with a TV star. His dad, who was like a wounded ex-athlete, uh, who, because his knee went out on him, was sort of forced to make severe changes and sort of live with uh, his life being haunted by the better life he might have had. Uh, and there are other characters that we can get into as well. <laughs> I think more most interesting maybe Benjamin Bratt. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I guess the question I ask is like, um, or the movie or this is asking, and it's based off of a novel, which I'm going to assume is asking the same question, is that, uh, is it okay that this 17-year-old is sucking his thumb? Because not to jump right to the thesis, but the moral of the story says, you know, if sucking the thumb makes you feel better, go ahead and do it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that does seem to kind of be the, <laughs> the takeaway. So this... Um, I don't even know what I think about that, to be honest. Exactly. That's sort of my question about the movie. There's a lot to like in the movie, but the moral of the story is, you know, ignore it, it'll go away. There's also an unpleasant little sort of subplot about him being uh, medicated yeah. and it dramatically changing his character and then him cold turkey getting rid of the medication, which if you know anything about mental illness is just, there's no quirk or fun or charm about that. People die. Yeah. People yeah. die. Uh, yeah, the, the mom has one line where she says, you know, something like, oh, that's not healthy, but it's left at that. Yeah. No, uh, people who are severely mentally ill who go off their meds end up decapitating strangers on buses. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, it's, it, I mean, I, I hate to be glib about it because that's a true thing that happened, but uh, the, also, the other side of the coin is a lot of people are over-medicated and end up losing who they are. I mean, that's another question, another tough thing about mental illness. If you're losing your personality with your medication, is it worth it? If you lose yeah. who you are in order to stay, quote, normal, to fit into the whatever world the world considers normal today, <laughs> um, if you're losing who you are, is it is it worth it? None of these questions are directly asked in Thumbsucker, and now maybe that's a slight against it, but again, I think much like the other movies we've been talking about, it wants to be a charming, sort of warm dramedy. And I think it is a charming, mainly warm dramedy. I just don't know if I buy the moral of the story. <laughs> I think that... I, I relate to the Vincent D'Onofrio character. He's much rougher and gruffer. He's kind of like a jock dude. His approach to things aren't, isn't what my approach would be. But it seems like he earnestly loves his family and he really wants to get his son to stop sucking his thumb because it's 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 what a child does. It's you know it's it, it's something that, that that's going to in his mind hold him back or make people think less of him, and uh, by proxy yeah. think less of his father. Right. So there are times where the D'Onofrio character comes off as quite gruff, but at the same time, the Tilda Swinton character, and Tilda Swinton's an actress who I love. It also seems at times a little bit checked out as a mom. I mean, she's really into this uh, B Benjamin Bratt TV star and trying to enter this contest where she can win a date with him. And um, she loves her son and supports her son, but he seems to be in the background of whatever soap opera is going on in her head. So nobody's, nobody's nerfed in this movie. 
<laughs> I, I like that about it, but um, I can't sort of put my finger on, you know, what I'm supposed to take from it. Mm-hmm. It, it. Should I just dismiss it as a one of these, another one of these sort of quirky dramedies, or is it telling me that if you have a mental illness or if you have a a, a character quirk, as long as it's relatively harmless and it brings you comfort, don't fight it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it's saying. I guess it's just maybe encouraging us all to take the road to self-discovery. Because, <laughs> well, he kind of, you know, learns that he can be different kinds of people, right? And he um, gets on the Ritalin or, or whatever they give him um, to make him focus, and he uh, ends up excelling on the debate team, which he never thought he would be able to do. And then, of course, that, you know, is unsustainable. And then he tries to get with Rebecca, the girl who ends up hanging out with the stoner kids. So then he goes to discover what life is like on pot and then, you know, kind of gets her through that journey because he discovers that she's only experimenting with him and would never even consider a real relationship. And that's really painful. And, you know, then I guess it's the, I don't know, maybe it's just the road. It's just the road. (laughs) It's the journey. It's the journey, (laughs) not the destination. And like, I've made that defensive movies too. And there's lots of like just tiny moments in the movie that I love. A twelve-year-old kid asking him what Kelly Garner's pussy feels like. Jesus yeah, his, Christ! The little brother was awesome, and you know, like incredibly profound things would come out of his mouth, and and but it was still believable as as kid things to say. Yeah, I thought the, the brother was great. I, I sort of look at he's going he's going to all these different places trying to figure shit out, right? The debate club, I think he mainly got into because he was interested in Kelly Garner, who's interestingly right. also going to be the romantic interest in Lars and the Real Girl, which we're going to be talking about right away here. Um, so yeah, he he that one he just sort of made that decision tactically, but for the most part, we're seeing him going to different places and trying to deal with things. You can go to this sort of Zen mantra meditative place, which Keanu Reeves kind of represents. You can just sort of tough it out which is what his dad kind of represents. And then there's like, just chill and let the world swim by, which is what the sort of potheads would kind of say. Um, mm-hmm. But in the end, it's sort of like everybody has their own their own medication that they take, quote unquote, be it drugs, be it the debate team, be it something that they do to just distract themselves. And uh, once he sort of learns that everybody has their own quirk, his just happens to be thumb sucking, and he realizes that his parents... I mean, most people have figured that out before they're 17, are not just not perfect, but they're quite far from perfect. They love him. They're good people. They're doing the best they can by him, but they are just as fucked and flawed as everybody else. (laughs) And that's a that's a bitter pill for a young person to kind of deal with it. Maybe the adults don't have all the answers because all the answers aren't there. (laughs) So, I mean, it's rich themes that they get into. I want to talk about Benjamin Bratt. <laughs> I'm, it's this sort of, what do you take of that sort of Tilda Swinton angle in the story where there's something, you get the feeling like D'Onofrio's pretty sure she's having an affair and uh, she's obsessed with this TV star and really wants to look attractive to him. There's, 
in the end, it's almost like she's take ends up taking care of Benjamin Bratt in the way she should be taking care of her family. <laughs> There's a, a yeah a weird story where he tells uh, the son who he just thinks is a juvie kid. He doesn't realize that he's talking about the kid's mom. That he thinks of her as a guardian angel because she helped him retrieve some drugs that got stuck up his ass once upon a time, and that you know oh, he she's helping died. him get clean and she's like taking him under her wing in some way. It's a strange relationship that they have, but it's not what we thought it was. Where does that fit into the tapestry for you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's um. I got the feeling as a mom, you know, she clearly loves her family also, but, you know, I mean, there's always the thought of, uh, you know, having a little more excitement in your life or having, you know, dream, unfulfilled dreams, um, you know, that the, the desire for, for that. And when she actually gets to um, get into a place professionally where she can interact with her, you know, her, the object of her imaginary affection then you know it kind of it that'll that'll feed something in her and but we do get to see that she is a professional and she does take her job seriously she's not just a stalker <laughs> but she's a percentage uh, she, of stalker but she's not she's not really she may be what do they call it emotionally cheating <laughs> or uh... yeah yeah i don't know I don't know. I, I think everybody can have kind of, I guess you can kind of have compartmentalize, <laughs> compartmentalize her, her emotional needs. I don't know. I appreciate that Tilda Swinton's totally willing to give us a flawed character. Same that, that we like, like I still like her in spite of all the same thing with Vincent D'Onofrio. Like I said, he comes off as a bit of a bully sometimes, but I, I really think he means well. <laughs> like, yeah. And that, 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 again, that warmth comes through. And it really helps these movies that are sort of tackling tough issues. But uh, there, there was one um, line in the movie that I didn't really, kind of came out of nowhere. Like the son is talking to, I think it was um, talking to the dentist, to Keanu Reeves, or maybe not, I don't know. Um, but he, the son says that if it, if it weren't, if I weren't her son, um, you know, I wouldn't even, she wouldn't even, I wouldn't even figure in her world kind of, kind of thing. Right. Like I, I didn't really, I didn't really understand where that was coming from or do do you remember yeah, the scene that I don't, I'm talking about? I, well, I, I specifically, I don't remember who he was talking to, but like, I, I hear what he's saying and that he feels like his mom's more interested in everything else except for him. She loves him, but like, he'll be fine. You're good. You're fine. And she's sort of looking at her own sort of area of the... But it would make sense for a woman in her early 40s to have no interest in a 17-year-old that didn't belong to her, right? Like, yeah, like why would yeah. she give a shit about some random 17-year-old? She should give a right. shit about her son, and she does. She's just not very good at showing it. Hmm. It uh, kind of came across to me like a comment about, you know, cool kids and not cool kids, you right. know what I mean? I just, I don't know, it kind of took me out of it for a second. I was or, like, oh, that's weird. She thinks, or she thinks that he's not cool enough for her. Uh, yeah, like that's what it sounded like. I don't know. He definitely seems like, a little bit hostile to his mom. Like he he feeds a lot of the demon to his dad. There's that scene where they're cleaning the garage, and he's like, "You know that she's not happy, and you know that all she cares about is this stupid contest." And D'Onofrio acknowledges it. 
yeah, I know that she's unhappy and it's a really difficult thing to deal with, <laughs> but I don't know what to do. She's yeah. my wife. We have this family. We're doing the best we can. And I think that's maybe the moral of the story. Everybody's doing the best that they can. And to the movie's credit, it doesn't give you any easy answers. He doesn't get the girl, and he shouldn't. That girl's kind of a bitch. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but again, I fall back on, is it okay for a 17-year-old to suck his thumb? Would I be okay with my sons at the age of 17 sucking their thumbs with this strange oral fixation? Like, I, I, I can't help but think that as a parent, I would feel like I'd, I'd fucked up if I wasn't at least trying to help them deal with that. But... Am I, is that my own shit? (laughs) Let him suck his thumb. I chew my nails. (laughs) I'm fucking 41 and I chew my nails. Yeah, that is a fine line, isn't it? Why can't you chew your nails and not suck your thumb? Hmm, Never thought of it that way before. But yeah, I don't know. The one thing that, do they address whether or not, because I mean, he's trying to stop sucking his thumb because of society and because of his father, but does he want to stop sucking his thumb? Like aside from having the self-soothing and how it makes him feel like, does he think it's weird himself? I don't think the movie even addresses that. It's costing him serious points socially and it's concerning his family. So for that reason, he wants to stop, but it provides a comfort. He wouldn't be doing it if it didn't provide him a comfort, right? Yeah. Yeah, but but I mean... And then, yeah, the other tactic that he said that I almost lost over was, of course, the medication. And the medication seemed to be helpful, but it seemed to transform him. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of became a little tyrant, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and again, like, uh, in the interest of treating thumb-sucking to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that that seems pretty dramatic. It's, it's treating a mos- mosquito bite with a shotgun, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, the movie's not asking those questions. I think they're just showing him all these different tactics that he's trying to take to deal with this problem, which in the end maybe isn't a problem. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I finish where I begin. Like, I don't know where I land on this thumb-sucking thing. I, I guess I'm part of the jaded reality that thinks that grown people sucking their thumbs is weird. But while I'm thinking about that, I'm chewing my nails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's weird, too. But I don't know if I think it should be weird. <laughs> or not. Yeah, I don't know. It's worth the discussion, and it's worth the watch. Um, yeah. uh, it'll probably end up more in the middle to me in this list, but uh, I did not regret my time with Thumbsucker at all. Good enough? Good enough. My little brother is crazy, right? I mean, he's crazy. If I may, he appears to have a delusion. What the hell is he doing with a delusion? She loves kids. Fantastic. When will it be over? When he doesn't need it anymore. We gotta fix him. Can you fix him? Bianca's in town for a reason. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. How can we help? Go along with it. This must be Bianca. We're welcome. It can be a communication. It can be a way to work something out. Chances are he's been decompensating for some time. We don't want anything to do with her. What's the big deal? She's a missionary. That's good, isn't it? Hey, what are you doing on Friday? I was just thinking that maybe we could all go out. Does she have a sister? We shot a woman that couldn't talk. 
They don't care. Lars, we do care. No, we don't. That is just not true. Every person in this town bends over backwards to make Bianca feel at home. We do it for you! So, Lars and the Real Girl, like so many other movies on this list, runs on an engine of charm. And it does have a lot of charm in it, I do agree. And uh, it's, it's hard to say anything bad about a movie which I believe is so well-intentioned. I do think it, it means well, and it's portraying a world where mental illness is taken seriously by an entire community. An entire community embraces a man who is severely mentally ill. It's a fantasy. The movie might as well be shelled by The Lord of the Rings and Wizard <laughs> of Oz. Yeah, we're uh, going to disagree about this one, I think. Lars is living in a garage next to where he, the house where he grew up. He's got a lot of issues. He finds out uh, through an acquaintance at work that you can order living dolls, and he does. <laughs> and he treats her like an actual girlfriend. Uh, he, I think that the entire illusion of the uh, movie could be easily destroyed if A... The central character wasn't played by Ryan Dreamboat Gosling. And B, if he was actually fucking that doll. Because <laughs> here's the thing, I, like putting one foot back in the real world, mental illness isn't cute all of the time, right? There's something adorable about Lars, and there's something adorable about the way he pretends that this is a real girl. And there's something adorable about the way everybody supports and embraces it. I love, I love where the heart of the movie's at, but it feels to me like that old show West Wing, where it was, it was portraying the world as the most naive leftist person would, would, would believe it to be. Like, wouldn't it be nice if people were this compassionate? Wouldn't it be nice if people, you know, treated people who were mentally ill with this measure of respect? I like the acting in it, I like the cast, and it's a tough premise to sell, and considering what a tough premise it is, it works way more than it shouldn't, but I can't help but feel like this is the least attached to the real world of any of the six movies, including the Royal Tannenbaums. That's where I start with Lars and the Real Girl, I'm sorry. No, no. Um, <laughs> I agree, but I disagree at the same time. Okay. Um, with the fact that it's so detached from the real world because it is but um i choose to view it from the the idea that people can surprise you you know and even though it's totally implausible that the whole community would get together and, um, you know, go along with Lars's delusion. Um, yeah, it's implausible, but people can surprise you. And it is a small town in Iowa or wherever. And, you know, they're just getting along. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you have a, you know, the, the weird guy who lives down the street pretty soon he's just the guy who lives down the street mm -hmm. i mean you know that that shit happens and and getting used that... sorry no that's okay getting and... used to lars i understand like like obviously he's part of the community they know that lars ordering a sex doll and parading her around town 
and everybody being okay with it, that's a step. Then them coming over to Lars' house to pick up his doll to take her out to get her hair done, right? Then when yeah. uh, he believes she's getting sick, he calls an ambulance, and the ambulance comes and takes his sex doll to the hospital. Yeah. And he visits his sex doll in the hospital, and, like, uh, it's, it's one thing to, you know, sort of support the delusion. And the movie sells this remarkably well, because it sounds like a ridiculous premise, but while you're watching the movie, you do go with it. Like, yeah. I, I like a lot about the movie. I, I just, again, I'm working with this theme as mental illness, as entertainment. And I just well, think and the real world Lars is would be this incredibly, incredibly lonely, frustrated dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, there's nothing, like, overly rude about him. He just doesn't seem to deal well with other people. You get the feeling like he kind of likes that Kelly Garner, who's playing a much more likable character in this movie than she did in Something Thumbsucker. But uh, that there's a wall, an invisible wall that is between them that he imagines will always be there. And the wall doesn't come down until he lets go of his girlfriend, this, this, this sex doll. Right. Well, his delusion stems from, you know, past traumas and stuff. And he, he doesn't want, he doesn't like physical contact. And um, all this, I guess, kind of comes out when, because he brings Bianca, the doll, to the doctor because his brother and sister-in-law encourage him to bring the doll kind of as a guise of getting him some some, uh, help because... Obviously, they're worried about his mental health. And uh, Patricia Clarkson, um, I think, is just wonderful as the as the doctor slash therapist. She's got such a just such a soothing demeanor. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would want I would want her to be my therapist. No, she's just incredibly compassionate. Yeah. And in, in in such a way as to make it feel contagious. Like mm-hmm. you wish you could be that compassionate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, just everybody going along with it, I don't, no, I didn't think it was that far off. I didn't think it was that implausible um, just because of the the, the way the, the story progressed and the situation developed. I mean, yeah. I guess I went with it. my cynical side comes out here. You know, this is small town middle America. This is Trump country. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> and, that's, uh, not fair. that's not fair, Larry. <laughs> but uh, I, I just I have to believe there'd be one or two of the people that would see him walking around with this sex doll and say, "Well, and his, Fuck his brother that. did. His brother does express that. Mm-hmm. You know, he he knows that people are are going to laugh at him, and and they kind of do at the beginning. At you first, know? I mean." But he's just embraced. Like, the entire community mourns Bianca. <laughs> 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 There's that, that really charming scene where, they're, uh, where they bathe Bianca and they just start laughing because of how silly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought that, you know, because at the end of that scene, she ends up face down in the tub and I thought Lars was going to come in and freak you know, out. Like they were drowning her or something. <laughs> um. <laughs> It could have really easily been creepy. <laughs> it really, really could have. <laughs> well, and I mean, it was a little uncomfortable when he does end up kissing her down by the water. Like, uh, that was kind of weird. So, yeah, I'm glad that he didn't end up having sex with his doll. But 
and again, my cynicism, real world says, if this story took place in the real world, he was fucking that tall. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and... But that's the line, be, too, right? If, if he was intimate with that doll, the whole illusion would fall apart, right? The whole, everything charming and sweet about it would completely vanish, right? <laughs> and if it wasn't, you know, this wasn't portrayed so well... I keep just blanking on his name, sorry. Uh, Ryan Gosling with the weird mustache and the charming little smile. What if he was like this fat, scuzzy, you know, shady-looking dude with a with a wandering eye, you know? It's just like all the stars aligned to make this guy like the most adorable, insane person. <laughs> right? uh, I, I don't know. I don't feel that way about it. I, don't, I, I hate to come off as such a cynic. And again, the, the movie's just trying to put a smile on your face. That's all it's trying to do. And I want a world where this is true. I want a world where a small town America, a guy orders a sex doll because he's that tragically lonely. And despite the fact that he takes it out on the town, nobody gives him any shit about it. In fact, it's embraced almost without question. Like, that would be great. It would also be great if we had time machines. It would also be great if I could ride a dinosaur. But this is just not the world that we live in. Okay, but, okay, so how about the real-world situations? So, um, Lars doesn't like to, like, he doesn't, he can't handle human contact and the sister-in-law is really well-meaning and she's trying to help him but she's constantly you know like what at one point she um even tackles him to the ground yeah. and you know ends up laying on top of him because she wants him to come to dinner or whatever and she's really trying her hardest to you know get him out of his shell and everything like that and however well-meaning that is that's like the worst thing that she could be doing to this guy you know and um bianca's not going to do that to him you know she can't touch him she can't touch him without you know (laughs) without his consent so a relationship with himself yeah like all of bianca's side of the conversation or indeed arguments because they start fighting (laughs) Uh, are all coming from his head. This is Norman Bates shit, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's working shit out though. All all this is is okay. uh, working shit out. How about I ask you this? Maybe this is the question that I'm trying to get to. When it comes down to it, does Lars know that Bianca is a sex doll? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So. It's not healthy. <laughs> like maybe this is some sort of self therapy, but it's 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 a strange it's a strange place to be. We've landed in a strange place with Lars. It's a good but, thing that he's harmless and cute because if he wasn't, he would be the next Jeffrey Dahmer. You know? No, no, but he. I mean, he knows Bianca's a doll, but he doesn't. I mean, but it's still a delusion, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not like every day he's saying, "Oh, today I'm gonna pretend that this doll is real." Yeah. You know, like it's it's more nuanced than that. He would have had to give his credit card information to some sleazy internet site, and he would have had to unpack her and say, you know. <laughs> dress her yeah, like, but, like, while, but while you're doing that that can be you know that's that's an easy adjustment getting to know your face in your brain you know you, he's paying for her plane ticket and he's helping her unpack her bags yeah. like that's that's easy stuff to get around you know 
maybe this <clears throat> quite quite charming comedy was a missed opportunity to be a quite terrifying horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, all of these could, you know, you change one thing in Benny and June, yeah. you know, when he when he falls off the window, if he doesn't break his ankle, if he, like, smashes in his skull instead, that's a different movie, right? <laughs> we find out the reason that the Johnny Depp character just showed up like a layabout about time is he's running from a murder rap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I react this way to Lars Lindbergh because I do like the movie is the thing like I, I, I enjoyed watching it it's just uh, watching it through this filter of how we treat Ill, mental illness in films it just seems a little Disney to me I think that it's heart is in the right place I really do but I don't think this is what mental illness typically looks like and I don't think this is what the reaction to mental illness is as nice as that would be yeah I don't know. I sometimes I think that um, wish fulfillment can be healthy. Hey, and that's <laughs> what movies are for in a lot of ways. Yeah. They give us answers where there are none. You know, was <laughs> the line in Grand Canyon? Steve Martin gives all of life's riddles are answered in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, this is posing some questions, and I like I think it's it's a warm, nice, feely movie. Um, but I, I don't know that it's a serious take on mental illness. I think it's kind of a whimsical, fantastical comedy. And taken as that, great, enjoy. But yeah, I don't think I learned anything too deep about mental illness. Maybe a little bit about how we react to it, but not about illness itself. Well, no, and I mean, if you're looking at, uh, I mean, as far as severity of different mental illnesses, this one, you know, is is on the less severe mm-hmm. end of the spectrum, right? So, I mean, there's that too. In um, the end of the day, his his illness is that he's really, 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 really lonely. <laughs> well, no, that's. That's a, that's oversimplification. Yeah, yeah. Oversimplification, but I mean, it, I mean, he was never. I don't think he's, um, you know, a danger to himself or anybody else, mm-hmm. um, or anything like that, you know. Um, but there was also that. Um, I mean, you see his, you see his character evolve, and when he starts actually communicating with the, with the girl at his office, with with the Margot character, you know, he kind of, you see him come out of his shell a little bit and there's that really adorable teddy bear resuscitation scene <laughs> you know when she's had her feelings hurt by the the meanie in the office who he hung, hung her, her bear he hung her teddy bear a little bastard yeah yeah no <laughs> and the the meat cute stuff at the office i kind of liked the weird nerdy vibe that kelly garner was giving off like uh she wasn't a confident person, but her feet were much more on the ground than Lars were, and maybe together they could figure something out. Like, it's yeah, fun. It's, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> I, I feel like I've been mean to it. I do like the movie. I do. I just uh, I got to rank them from from six to one. <laughs> so I guess I was a little harder on Lars. Is there yeah. anything else you want to say about Lars? Mm, nope. Ryan Gosling's dreamy. <laughs> what meds are you on? I used to be on lithium and Seroquel. I was on Xanax. You ever take Klonopin? Klonopin, yeah. Like, is it what? I'm tired, I want to go. Are you going to walk me home or what? You have poor social skills. You have a problem. I have a problem? Mm-hmm. You say more inappropriate things than appropriate things. Doc, she's crazy. Hey! Whoa, what the hell? She knew where I was, she followed me. Then why don't you run somewhere else? Calm down, crazy. Maybe she just needs a friend. You want to have dinner at this diner? 
Pick me up at 7.30. So how's your job? I just got fired, actually. Oh, really? How? By having sex with everybody in the office. Everybody? I was very depressed after Tommy died. We don't have to talk about it. Thanks. How many were there? Oh, she's a mess. You gotta be careful. She does a lot of therapy. I go to a lot of therapy. Am I messed up? I just gotta get a strategy, you know? Me too. So there's this dance thing. I can only do it if I have a partner. Oh, I'm not gonna dance with you. So is this the girl you wrote about? You wrote about me? She's fine. She is my friend with an F. A capital F. She's fine. For friend. What are you so up about? I'm happy. Look, I'm my best self today, and I think she's her best self, and that's a good thing. Lost in my mind. I know you don't want to listen to your father, I didn't listen to mine. When life reaches out at a moment like this, it's a sin if you don't reach back. This is what I believe to be true. You have to do everything you can. And if you stay positive, you have a shot at a silver lining. I'm never going to win. <laughs> Not with that <laughs> attitude. Not with that attitude. <laughs> um. Silver Linings Playbook from David O. Russell, who is a, a director that I do like, but a person that I would never want to meet. <laughs> mm. uh, I don't know anything about him. Uh, he directed a film called uh, Three Kings, mm. George Clooney, Flirting with Disaster, uh, I Heart Huckabees. Oh. So, uh, and, and this one, obviously. The Fighter is what he got his Oscars for. Um, he's an interesting director, but... If you go online, uh, ironically, in a previous film he did that had a lot to do with uh, mental health, I Heart Huckabees, on the set he lost his fucking mind on Lily Tomlin. You can see really? him just screaming and throwing shit and swearing and being this complete monster to one of the great American treasures that we have. Hmm. Um, he's, uh, I heard that he'd sort of made this Silver Lining Playbooks movie as a way to express his relationship with a family member who suffers from similar illnesses. And as far as I'm concerned, he's making this because I believe David O. Russell's probably, if not bipolar, suffering from something. <laughs> like, he's a really creative guy. He's a smart guy. He makes really cool movies a lot of the time. But I think that he's a handful. <laughs> and I think... Uh, Silver Linings Playbook, on one hand, is trying to take an honest, fairly honest look at a lower end of mental illness. This is not like, this is more obsessive compulsive bipolar than it is schizophrenia or some sort of like serious personality disorder. But uh, what a huge weight that can put, not just on your life, but on your family's. Yeah. The interesting thing about Silver Linings Playbook, which is a movie that I like a lot, is that this should be a movie that I hate. <laughs> Why is that? This is a story about two wounded people that find each other, enter a dance competition, and through <laughs> it, become better people. Also sports. <laughs> also sports. <laughs> but the movie is so much better than that premise would suggest, and has a lot of surprises to the left and right. Um, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence are sort of the focus, but I also really want to give a lot of attention to Jackie Weaver and Robert De Niro as the parents. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say thank you to Silver Linings Playbook for giving me a movie starring Chris T with Chris Tucker in it where I don't fucking hate Chris Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's okay. a fine actor, but there's no artifice to this performance there's nothing shrill or or, or com over over the top comedy about it he's just delivering an earnest performance which is great 
great to see. So I guess to start with you, as I'll say, in spite of all of these sort of cliche beats in the movie, I think it works and quite well. How is that possible? <laughs> what is it about Silver Lining Playbooks that makes it overcome what seems like to be just another sort of cliched romance? Or does it for you? Um, I guess I shouldn't put words in your mouth. <laughs> no, it does. It does. I liked it too. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess... Um, I guess the dialogue's more interesting than in a run-of-the-mill comedy. And there is a concrete reason for the dance competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and they kind of, we have um, conversations and character development while they're training for the dance competition. And, um, yeah, and the fam- family dynamics are are pretty interesting. Um, I thought that the manic episodes were were pretty well done. Like uh, the scene where Pat is looking for his wedding video mm-hmm. and, you know, wakes up the whole household, the whole neighborhood, really, um, if, that's the, if that's the same scene. Yeah. But, yeah, um, just just well done and, and realistic, I think. It's really... Bradley Cooper comes home after a stay in a mental health facility and he's still obsessed with sort of getting his ex-wife back. And everybody seems to quietly understand that that's not going to happen, but, but he hasn't come to terms with it yet. We also see in his father some other quirks and uh, some similar issues that might suggest where some of his mental illnesses come from. They both have things that they're strangely obsessive about. But it doesn't exactly sugarcoat, like... He's reading all of the books that his ex-wife is teaching, her, her curriculum, to try and get himself, I guess, in the same headspace as what she's reading or whatever, to somehow tie himself to her. And he has a furious breakdown about this Steinbeck book, was it? Or uh, I can't remember what the novel was. But he wakes up his parents and he throws the book through a, a window and, and just becomes a complete lunatic. And yeah. his parents are so exhausted and exasperated. And... You'd expect them to say, shut the fuck up and go to bed, right? You know, like that would seem to be the knee-jerk reaction. But what you see is such weary compassion (laughs) on their faces. Like they know that their son's not well. They know that he doesn't fully get how inappropriate what he's doing is doing. He's just reacting on a big feeling that he's having right now. And they have to weather the storm. And so many people have to weather that storm. And it's so rarely shown in a movie. It's moments like that yeah, that really connect. Yeah, and this is another one of those um, situations where you were saying before that, um, you know, people don't want to take their medication because they don't feel like themselves and they get bloated and they're, you know, everything is kind of fuzzy. And so, yeah, but this is what happens when you don't take your medication. Yeah. So, Yeah. I think the performances go a long way to salvage kind of the familiar structure. I think that if you didn't have your De Niro and your Jennifer Lawrence and your Bradley Coopers in there, I think a weaker cast might not have held this up. Um, But I think that because it's a personal story to David O. Russell, like, obviously, I find it interesting that even within his explanation of it, he's putting it off on another person. George Clooney punched this guy in the face, okay? Seriously? George Clooney. (laughs) Before... Uh, on the set, apparently, of Three Kings, he was being so belligerent to the extras 
that George Clooney lost his temper with them and they got physical. Uh, wow. he's, he, he said even though Three Kings is one of the favorite movies of his that he's done he wouldn't work with David o. Russell again <laughs> so he like he's a difficult guy but he knows that he's a difficult guy I guess right and uh, even though he might be masking it as it being about a family member that he knows who suffers from <laughs> similar things I think it's bold of him to tackle it The romance between Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence is kind of interesting. There's a there's a age gap which is sort of recognized there, but it's kind of a Benny and June thing where this guy's broken and fucked up, she's broken and fucked up. They'll be perfect together. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they have this sort of formal structure thing. They like they're almost dragged into this relationship. On some level, he knows there's going to be a relationship here, and on some level, she knows there's going to be a relationship here. But they have to meet and do these dance classes and keep a safe distance until it just magically happens, inevitably. <laughs> we well, see it coming, they I mean, see it coming, that, but it's still satisfying. That was, I mean, if the relationship... I guess the what the relationship is built on is kind of like what I consider the weak part of the movie. I mean, I don't know if they... I couldn't decide if the movie wants us to think that she really did um, get the letter from Nikki. But as soon as it was typewritten, I kind of... Yeah. Like, right away, I was like, oh, she wrote that letter. And that's not you know? cool. Like, but I don't know if the movie... Did the movie care if we thought that or not? I couldn't decide later. The and movie didn't call her on it because it became more of a win that Bradley Cooper cared less about the note than it did about the note being a lie. Yeah. I think. That's my take on it. I'm not telling you what to think. <laughs> yeah. but And then later on at the... Uh, well, I thought the dance competition and the... Um, well, the... So they've made a bet about the Eagles, and then they've parlayed the dance competition into that bet. And it's really high stakes. And yep. that's another issue with the family is that, you know, the Robert De Niro character, um, aside from his, uh, he's got a sports book, and aside from his um, superstitions that he's dragging his whole family into, you know, he really bets the farm um, and can lose everything, right? So yeah. I guess that's what kind of makes it exciting but um but that, i i really enjoyed those scenes you know like seeing the you know oh we've won the game and then they have their their quirky little dance scene and then um having won the bet that was um i like that uh, they I won like the bet just barely like they the the whole thing was like they failed in the competition but they scored just enough so that yes. they would win the bet so they were celebrating yeah. this huge huge like the not so lukewarm scores and everybody else in the building is completely confused you guys just got a yeah. pretty mediocre score and you're acting like you just won something and sometimes mm -hmm. there's something to be said for celebrating the failures i mean i know that was a victory for them but no they didn't become yeah. great dancers all of a sudden they yeah. didn't even necessarily become like better dancers but they're healthier for having done this dance competition yeah but yeah, as I, like I that. say that out loud, it's just so fucking cheesy. <laughs> I didn't like how the ending of the, well, the, I guess, the start of their relationship maybe then mm -hmm. was handled because he, you know, Nikki did in fact come to the dance competition. So 
I mean, I guess we're the Jennifer Lawrence character thinks that he's walking towards his ex-wife and, you know, he leads in and whispers in her ear. And so, of course, she, Jennifer Lawrence mistakes this for, oh, no, he's going back to his wife, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, then, of course, he runs after her and and expresses his love for her. But, I mean, you got to know, as a guy, he could have just turned to her and said, hey, hang on a second, I'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that didn't really, that kind of found that part a little annoying. Because, well, I mean, as an, an audience member, we know that he's not, he's not telling in his wife's ear, he's not saying, oh, I'm so glad you came, can we get back together? Yeah. You know, we know he's saying, actually, I'm doing really well, I'm going to go run after this girl, or whatever, you know? I, I got mean, places eh. to be. He's no yeah. longer stuck in that place where he's his life is meaningless unless he repairs that that relationship. He's got other things right. he can focus on. So that's a win right. for him. I think what you're saying is is just that that's one of those conventional romantic, romantic comedy things. You know, the girl thinks she's lost the guy. She's walking away all teary and upset, presumably to go home and <laughs> swallow a bunch of pills or something. Right. Right? And then, lo and behold, the guy shows up and it's all sweet. There yes. is there is a little bit of saccharine to this movie, but it's delivered in a really good package. Like I say, the performances are good, and the uh, it's the sincerity. It's like it, it it didn't feel it feels feels more genuine than Lars and the Real Girl because it's not the whole community. It's just the family that that has that commitment to putting up with this illness no matter what it presents. Uh, the rest of the world almost kind of disappears to the left and right. That's the curse of mental illness. You can be lost to depression or to delusion for years yeah. before your head comes out and, and you can actively start participating in the world outside of your own head. Mm-hmm. I heard it said somewhere that, you know, if you're having a really bad manic state, the thing you have to try to remember is that in the end of the day, right now, you're just a person in a room making themselves crazy. <laughs> so sometimes you just need to get out of the room and mm. uh, go to a dance competition or a sport game. Or, or a sport game, that's great. Like, <laughs> a baseball game. Uh, and, you know, listen to good advice when it's presented. Mm-hmm. A lot of the times, especially if you're ill, the right advice just hits your ears as so wrong. But... As De Niro says, when life presents something to you, you have to grab it. It's a sin if you don't. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's on the nose. Yeah, that might be a little bit Disney, but it gave me the feels while I was watching it. <laughs> so uh, it's it's another win for David O. Russell. I don't think it's his masterpiece, but I think it's rock solid. Mm-hmm. Anything else I like, you want to say? Oh, just I like the scenes with Dr. Patel. <laughs> um, I thought I thought he was pretty awesome, and I liked that he, uh, you know, he played that Stevie Wonder trigger song in the office just to just to see, see if it was happened. still a trigger. And yeah. yep, sure was. Afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I liked him. Yeah. Uh, and like the outbursts, especially the Bradley Cooper outbursts. Again, they're sort of safe mental illness outbursts, and maybe it would be less again digestible if he wasn't as dreamy looking as Bradley Cooper. <laughs> but uh yes. yes see yeah agree uh but you know <laughs> i think that the, the movie again it's the well-intentionedness of the movie uh yeah 
one of these days Hollywood's going to start casting normal looking people, but we're not there yet. <laughs> <clears throat> but I, I like that when he had the flip out in the uh, in the room uh, uh, or the waiting room of his doctor's office. Yeah, it was an outburst and yeah, it was uh, over the line, but nobody needed to call the police. Everyone just looked at him like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like this movie a lot. Thank you so much, Mireille, for coming back to the podcast uh, and Skyping all the way from far off romantic Edmonton, Alberta. It's nice Happy to you. see you again. I'm sorry you've been looking at a frozen image of me all of this time. It must be really boring <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, it's all right. But um, I think you and I are, uh, let's be sure, everybody's a little bit mentally ill. But I think on the spectrum, you and I are doing okay, <laughs> right? We're doing all right. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sane enough for a middle-aged man, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's, I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of what normal is, especially after my son was diagnosed with autism and reading books about the autism spectrum. Sometimes you kind of feel like everybody's a little bit on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just uh, some people register on the spectrum in an area that we call normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some people have better communication skills. Some people have less communication skills. Some people have different triggers. But we're all people, and we're all mentally ill, and <laughs> in some way or another. I honestly do think it's the plague of our modern age. <laughs> we don't have to. We're not hunter gatherers anymore. We're not out there worried about you know being eaten by lions. Now all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> the enemies are coming from within. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know what the answer is, and no one does. But I'm increasingly skeptical that that pills are the answer. Sometimes, maybe for some people they are, maybe they aren't. But uh, it's a well, tough. I think it's a it, it's a part of the answer. Yeah, it's a tough issue, and I think that's why maybe Hollywood has a hard time with it. Um, like I said, I was maybe a little bit hard on some of these films because I was looking at it through that lens. I want to say again before we do our ranks. All of these movies are thumbs up reviews. I sort of based my, my, my scale on how well they address specifically mental illness. If we were ranking these movies on how charming they were or as romantic comedies, it might be different. I'm fascinated to hear what your list is. What was your, what was your least favorite of these six movies and why? My number six was Benny and June. And um, I did like this movie. I found it charming, and I liked a lot of the performances. It was, um, yeah, fun to see Oliver Platt, and uh, Mary Stuart Masterson was good in it. Johnny, Johnny Depp was pretty good in it. But, but yeah, I guess 
I guess in the end it was just because it was, you know, I just didn't have as much um, depth as my opinion as the other as the other movies and um, yeah that whole feeling I got that the movie was saying you know that love can can solve your problems you know it's a little dizzy. Uh, <laughs> in mental health was yeah that was a little much so that's why it's number six fair enough number five uh, I put Thumbsucker um, I did I like this movie a lot um, found it really interesting but I guess the um, and there are a lot of scenes in it that I really enjoyed um, we didn't even talk about the the scene where uh, Justin convinces his brother to come and distract Keanu Reeves while he's riding his <laughs> bike and causes him to crash yeah. yeah just because he's he's upset that he's kind of um, that uh, Keanu Reeves has hypnotized him and made him his thumb tastes like echinacea yeah <laughs> but yeah so i mean there were i did enjoy a lot of scenes but i guess the the middle part of the movie where he's on ritalin and stuff i just found less engaging right number four is what's eating gilbert grape for me um and again these are all really good you know movies i really i think the movie is fantastic maybe it's because um it's one of the older ones so the story was a little less fresh for me i don't know i can't really say why my you know my four three two one are all i really like all of them so right <laughs> so it ended up being number four it gets tricky yeah 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 um number three silver linings playbook Again, thought it was great, but we just had the conversation about um, the the romantic comedy tropes that kind of kind of stuck out for me. But yeah, again, really strong scenes, good acting. Number two, uh, Lars and the Real Girl, oh, wow. and I found yeah, you just said wow, like you can't believe I. You know. <laughs> How could that possibly be? No, I totally embrace the kind of magical quality um, of the community trying to help Lars out and going along with the delusion. To me, I, I didn't have a problem with that at all. And it's kind of what, and I agree with you that it's not realistic, but I think that's okay. And I think that people can people can surprise us. And even though, you know, Maybe the redneck down the street is going to be a jerk and call him out, but maybe he wouldn't, you know? I mean, hopefully he would surprise you. So, And, you know, I just thought the story was charming. I thought the acting was great, and it wasn't like any other movie I'd seen before. So that's number two. And number one, Royal Tenenbaums. I love this movie so much. Um, yeah, I don't know what more there is to say about it there's just so many lines of dialogue that keep coming back to me and i watch it again every couple of years and it's just yeah it's one of my favorites that's a good list i'm sorry you're right we're, we're not going six for six or zero for six you you, you called that <laughs> <laughs> but i don't think we disagree as much as maybe you think we disagree <laughs> like uh okay like, i think we're on the same page i i came off hard on lars and the real girl i realized i have the minority opinion of that there's just it's something that is so optimistic that uh, I, 
I want to believe in it, but part of me is just resistant to it. Just, <laughs> I don't know. In sixth place is not Lars and the Real Girl, though. In sixth place, I, I agree with you. I put Benny in June. Completely adequate, completely charming romantic comedy of the early 90s. I think that uh, the mental illness is maybe played off as a little bit cute. And it kind of shows up when it needs to and goes away when it needs to. But the movie just wants to put a smile on your face. And I think it does. So it's it's a, worth your time. But as far as exploring the theme of mental illness, the least, least weight in this list. In fifth place, I put Thumbsucker. I really like the characters. I like that everybody has good and bad aspects. I think that if there's something I can't close my hand around, it's just if there is a moral to the story and what that moral <laughs> might be. Um, be yourself, even if other people think yourself is crazy, I guess. And maybe in most cases that's good advice, but I would argue not in all of them. <laughs> if you're prescribed medication, please, please stay on your medication. Yeah. <laughs> public service announcement compliments to Frank and review I'll stay on my meds if you stay on yours <laughs> okay <laughs> all the way in fourth position Lars and the real girl because although it's full of great performances and lots of charm I guess fundamentally I find the premise almost impossible to swallow which is like I have to think about it as a fantasy film almost and then I can get behind it it's awe-shuck optimism on the level of, I don't know what's a better example, Miracle on 42nd Street or oh, something like on. this. Oh, come on. Come on. Am I too harsh? I apologize. Please watch Lars and the Real Girl. This is an endorsement of the movie. I, it sounds like I'm being mean to it. I just, wouldn't it be great if everybody was so compassionate and warm and nice to people who are mentally ill? That would be awesome. If it was true. <laughs> Thank you, Hollywood, for showing us this alternate universe. <laughs> All the way in third place, I'm putting What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Because for a movie made in 1993, when a lot of this stuff we're talking about with mental illness was maybe not circulating in the air as much, they take not just the autism, but all of the people's sort of mental state very seriously. And to certain degrees, everybody either warms or breaks your heart in the movie. And uh, it's a tough balancing act. It doesn't work for everybody. I know there are some people who kind of roll their eyes at it. But for me, I think it's a very strong dramedy. And that's a hard balance to get right. So big props to What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And uh, a really, really strong DiCaprio performance. So I like that. Somehow Silverlining Playbooks, even though like we've both said over and over again, it's a completely familiar cheesy structure that's just loaded with all of this compassion and warmth. <clears throat> the, the, this is probably one of the better date movies that's been made in the last few years, I'm going to guess. Uh, I like how everybody's ill and everybody's trying to get better and everybody's helping each other. <laughs> and it, it, it gives you the good feels. It's a warm energy to the movie. I think it's worth your time. Silver Linings Playbook fights its way to the number two. Although that one and, and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, that was tough. Gilbert Grape almost took second place. But of course, I think you heard me like going way over the top about my praise for Wes Anderson and my love of his approach, especially to this type of material. The Royal Tannenbaums. I mean, 
that's probably one of my favorite movies of the aughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's it's if I'm making a list of my favorite movies, I don't know where it would land, but it would probably be somewhere on that list. I am a fanboy of Wes Anderson. I love his aesthetic. If you don't, then it's not going to be the same experience for you. Like I say, my sister, who I love, said this was the most boring movie she'd ever seen. And it broke my heart when she said it. It just broke my heart. Because I think it's so far from that. Um, It somehow manages to be both artificial and genuine at the same time. Like, I know it doesn't sound like it makes any sense, but that's what it does. So how come Lars and the Real Girl can't be artificial and genuine at the same time for you then? <laughs> I the know, world, it's, a different, I know it's a different ballpark, but... The world. I wonder if, if they had the Wes Anderson aesthetic where it was just slightly arch. It was like, like the neighborhood in Edward Scissorhands to pull a weird one, you know? Uh, all of the, the way they portray suburbia in Edward Scissorhands. And yeah. how they find this freak at the top of the hill and just completely embrace him without question. Yeah. That happens in Tim Burton world. That doesn't happen in the real world. In the real world, they call the police and the freak gets arrested and hauled away. <laughs> right? But it's called, called Lars and the Real Girl, not Lars and the Real World. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 okay, no, no, no. It's it, right. it went to it's fourth right. place. That's not, it's not a bad standing. <laughs> like... But I think other than that, I think we maybe disagree a little bit on Lars and the Real World. Even though we both liked it, you clearly liked it more than I did. But for the most part, I think we're more or less on the same page. We yeah. got the top and the yeah, bottom the same. And, you know, the other ones are they're inter- not interchangeable, but they're interesting in different, similar ways. Yeah, yeah. I know you've got shopping to do, and I've had you, had you tied up here for two hours and change. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming back and doing my show and not waiting ten years for doing it. This is nice. <laughs> Uh, Should you feel like maybe you'd like to do another one, you're always welcome to. But I don't want to be this guy who's always pestering, pestering, pestering. (laughs) You give so much. So uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, Let me know. You know where the lists are. (laughs) So uh, you know me fairly well-ish. I think you could probably look at the list and figure out one maybe where the books are cooked. (laughs) You seem to want that win real bad. Yeah, I'm gonna to try to approach this from a from a different uh, different place next time. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start with winning in mind. Right. Uh, well, you got some shopping well, to do, and I gotta go medicate. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. It was fun talking to you. Yeah, it was. Take care. Episode 109 comes to a close. Thank you so much for listening to that one. And we will be back again in two weeks. 
If you would like to tell me how wrong I was about Lars and the Real Girl or about <laughs> Benny and June, you can do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Rankin Review, and please keep doing it.